All right. Well, hey, thanks uh, for worshiping. Thanks, team, for doing that. Um, and man, I'm excited today. I'm excited about the chance that we have as a church to continue through God's Word uh, to do what we've already done, right? We, many of us believe, and I know not everybody here may share the same faith, but for those who are Christians, we believe that we do have a king, and he is not a narcissistic king. Uh, he is not a king who is unkind. He is not a king who is cruel. He is a king who is loving and who is gracious and who is sovereign who, and who is absolutely in charge of everything. And in everything in your life and your story today that you feel is out of control, he's God in control. And he may not be controlling it the way that I want. He may not be controlling it the way that you want, but he is in control. You have a loving, sovereign, amazing, powerful, gracious king who gave everything for you because he loves you with everything that he has. And our hope and our confidence is that one day we won't just be singing about him on blue chairs in a concrete room, but one day we'll be singing to him together as a community. And so we're grateful that until that day comes, we have days like this to be together and to take time out of our crazy schedule and our misaligned priorities to try to align our priorities back around Jesus. And that's what we're here to do today. So I'm going to pray and we're going to move into it. Father, thank you. Thank you that you loved us enough, as Jonathan shared, um, that you came to rescue us and that Jesus willingly gave up uh, his position in heaven to come to be where we are because that is the only chance we'd have of ever being with him. And thank you that for those of us who believe what the story of Easter teaches, that, Father, we this morning can have confidence and amidst anxiety and amidst discouragement and amidst despair, we can know that Jesus is ruling and in this very moment he is being praised by thousands and thousands of angels declaring his worth and declaring his glory. And I pray that for us today, in some way the Spirit will help us just get some glimpse of that, some renewed understanding of the goodness of Jesus, that this isn't just a story that's a fable that we're reading about, but is a moment in time where the supernatural invaded our reality, Father, because of love. May we be a group of people that worships Jesus well and out of that love for others flows. So help us now as we open up your word. <clears throat> for some of us, this may be things we've not ever heard before. For others of us, this may have been things we've heard for many, many years. But Father, we want uh, you to work on our hearts for the way that you have for this truth to impact us today. And we pray this in the name of our King, waiting to see him and waiting to glorify him and honor him face to face. Amen. Well, today is, right, it's appropriate that we have songs about King Jesus, that we're talking about the King, because today in the, in the Christian calendar, right, is Palm Sunday, and it's the day that we celebrate, that we remember that day in history thousands of years ago when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and the people... Uh, and it's interesting, right? There's all sorts of scholarly discussion about how many people were involved in celebrating him. Was it just a lot of people? Was it thousands of people? But regardless of the numbers of people, man, there were groups of people on that day who were celebrating Jesus and they wanted to coronate him as king, right? This was the day that they thought their king was coming in a way they expected to take charge. This is the day we celebrate and we remember that during Holy Week, right, Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem this day to be crowned 
crowned, right? Many people wanted to crown him as king. And we're going to read that story in a little bit and read that account. But, but here's the reality. The reason that Jesus came into the city, into Jerusalem that day, was to do something that nobody else could ever do. The reason Jesus came into the city, the reason Jesus came into the earth is because there is something that you can't do, there's something that I can't do, and there's something that we can't do. And about 430 years before Jesus was on a donkey riding into the city of Jerusalem, there were a group of people in the city of Jerusalem who they couldn't do this. And from their story, we'll see what they can't do, and we'll talk about what we can't do, and we'll talk about why Jesus came to do those things. What was happening in the city of Jerusalem 430 years before Jesus rode into it? Well, about 430 years before Jesus rolled into the city of Jerusalem, we see Nehemiah finishing up his work in the city of Jerusalem. We've been in this series of Nehemiah, and today is our last day. And 430 years before Jesus came into Jerusalem are the events, probably, of Nehemiah chapter 13. The events in Nehemiah and the prophecies of Malachi were happening at the same time. And these are the very last things that happen in the Old Testament before Jesus is born in the New Testament. And so Nehemiah 13, we're going to look at what was happening 430 years before Jesus, what those people couldn't do, and what Jesus came to do. And if you're just jumping in with us, uh, you've missed four months in a sermon series. So I'm going to take... <laughs> So I'm going to take about an hour just to review, and then we'll move into the sermon. Now, so here's what we've seen, and I'd encourage you, I've personally really enjoyed studying through this. Uh, I, I've, in seminary, I think every fifth chapel speaker spoke on the book of Nehemiah, so I was so burned out on Nehemiah. I've never preached it myself at a church uh, through the book, and so I, this was the first time I've done it. I've really enjoyed it, and I know that some of you have said God's used it to encourage you. Here's what we've seen so far. Nehemiah had this call to respond to this problem. And the problem he heard about was that these walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. And that was a problem, but the deeper problem was that that was causing worship of God in the city of Jerusalem to be hindered and to be suppressed. And so he spent almost two months rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He rallied a team together. And these were, most of these walls back in the day before he came to town were all torn down. And so we talked about how he spent some time with people repairing them. And he repaired the walls and he repaired each of these gates. There's the sheep gate, the east gate. We, we talked about that, right? And so he's gone through that process. And then he worked not just to rebuild the brick and mortar, but more importantly, like we've talked about a few weeks ago, he worked to rebuild the worship of the people who lived within that city because ultimately this was never about the walls around the city. This was about the hearts of people who lived in the city being vibrant worshipers of God in response to his truth. So Nehemiah had this big Bible conference that we studied. They read the law. People heard God's truth, some of them for the very first time, and they responded to the truth, and he put new leaders in place, right? And so we're kind of at this point now where last week they heard the law read for the first time. They had this half-day reading of the Old Testament up to that point, the law. And then 23 or 24 days later, they got back and like, man, we need to read some more Bible. We need to get into it. And so now they've had, you know, weeks and weeks of reading back God's truth and understanding God's truth. And then the people in response to that, they're like, man, we're, we want to follow this. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, they've now heard God's law and what he wants them to do. 
for many, many hours and many, many days. And this is what it says in Nehemiah 9, 38. And we're going to read a lot of Bible today. So you might want to have a Bible with you or open up your device and get ready to flip and scan because it's You're going to hear more Bible than me, maybe. It'll be a close tie. Here's what they said. They heard all this stuff, and they said, because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on a sealed document, and here are the names of our princes and the Levites and our priests. This is what they said. They said, for for the first time in many, many years, we've heard how God wants us to live. We've heard what he wants us to do, what he doesn't want us to do, and we are going to promise that we're going to do that. We're going to make a contract back with God. We're all going to sign it. It's going to be great. And so that's what the people do. They hear God's truth, and they say, okay, we're going to obey God's truth. What did they specifically promise to do? I'm going to read it for you. And as I read it, there's going to be three big kind of categories of promises I'd love for you to listen to. Here is what the contract is that they made with God. Here is what they promised they would do. Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 through 39. So 28 is pretty much just saying, hey, all these people, everybody in the city, right, no matter what their job, who they are, verse 29, join with their brothers, their nobles, and they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, a servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and the statutes. And here's what they say, ready, kind of for, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exactation of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give a yearly third part of the shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, skipping down, verse 34, we the priests and the Levites and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of God according to our Father's house at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the tree of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priest, to the chambers, to the chambers. Guess what I'm going to say again? To the chambers. That's going to be important. I want you to remember that word. That's why I said it three times. We promise we're going to bring it to the chambers. Everything we're supposed to give under the Old Testament tithe, we're going to bring to the chambers of the house of the Lord um, and to the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes of the house of God to the chambers of the storehouse, right? They made all these promises. This was like, I'm going to date myself, it's okay. This was like just a big Old Testament promise keepers conference. Right? Some younger generations, you're like, I've been to a passion conference, or I've been to a catalyst conference. Well, before there was passion conferences, before there were catalyst conferences, there was something called Promise Keepers. Anybody here ever been to a Promise Keepers conference? Okay. A few of you. Some of you are like, bro, I don't know what you're talking about. That's cool. Uh, but, But here's what it is, right? It was this organization that started up for guys, and... Decades ago, I went to a Promise Keepers conference in Atlanta at the Georgia Dome, and um, 
It was, you know, it was an interesting experience. Great things, interesting things. You know, it's the Georgia Dome is filled with just all dudes. And, you know, at certain points, you're singing worship songs. At certain points, your people are throwing beach balls around the auditorium. And they're like, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? Literally. We love Jesus. How about you? We love you. Beach balls are like, huh, okay. But... The, the, the big climax of the Promise Keepers Conference, right, was back in the day, there was this other dude who wrote the song Majesty. Anybody ever remember the song Majesty? Okay. Well, he came out, Majesty started playing Promise Keepers, and everybody had to stand up. Everybody, you don't have to, everybody stand up, and man, we're going to take the seven promises of a Promise Keepers. Are you ready? We're ready. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. I'm like... Man, I need some more lunch. Where's that, right? But everybody would stand up, all these dudes, oh, I promise never to, and you'd stomp your feet. That was their thing. Everybody stomp your feet. Boom. So you went through the seven promises of a promise keeper. And each one you stamped your feet and you swore before God, we will never do this and we will always do this. Well... Interesting side note, I wonder how many of us kept any of those promises. I wonder how quickly it was before we broke about six of the seven promises of the promise keeper. These guys had a promise keeper's rally in their own day in their Old Testament and no beach balls, no we love Jesus, yes we do, but they said we don't have seven promises of promise keepers, but we have three promises. And the three promises of those people had to do with wives, tithes, and I couldn't come up with a third one that rhymes with that. So Sabbath, okay? <laughs> I was like, beehives? I don't know. They are promises around three things, right? Hey, we promise, we make promises about wives. We will not intermarry. Wives tithes. We're going to do what the Old Testament says, and we're going to fill the chambers with all of our tithes. And third, inter, you know, third is Sabbath. We won't buy stuff on the Sabbath. We're not going to get on eBay. We're not going to go to the town square. Wives, tithes, and Sabbath. They promised to do those things, but here's why. Because they understood that those are the things that God wanted them to do. <clears throat> they promised to do those things because they'd been exposed to God's truth for the first time in many, many years, and they realized and learned that those are the things that God wanted them to do from their response. And I don't have any, I mean, I have points, but they're not going to pop up behind me. But they, they heard what God wanted. They said, we're going to do what God wants. And from that, right, their response to what God wants does kind of come this big initial foundational point that God wants our obedience. God wants my obedience God wants your obedience, <clears throat> God wants our obedience, and we should obey God. We should obey God. Now, there's some things to hold in tension with that, right? We got to have some, we hear that, and we got to make sure we, we respond to that properly, because God wants our obedience, and we should obey God, and what that means for us is we dare not water down his call for all of us to pursue holiness in our own lives. I think sometimes in churches, in our culture, in our day, we don't want to talk about sin, right? We don't want to sound like we're being legalistic because God doesn't want us to be legalistic, but somewhere in the whole process of that, we water down God's call to holiness. We water down God's expectation that, hey, 
we should be people who are striving to obey God. And at the same time that we hold that absolute truth tightly, we have to hold something just as tightly in, in response to it. We have to have the right motivation for that obedience. And the right motivation for those of us who have relieved in Jesus, the right motivation for our obedience, it should flow out of love from God as opposed to trying to think that that's the way we can get God to love us. Our obedience flows out of, man, I can't believe what God and the triune God and Jesus have done for me, and I want to love him, I want to honor him, and that love and that honor is what is propelling me to want to obey him as opposed to... I'm going to obey him so that he will love me. That the motivation for obedience is so important. We should obey God. God demands our obedience. God expects our obedience. And as people who love him, man, we should be like, I want to please him. Not only is the motivation for obedience important to keep in mind, but the source we look at to let us and cause us to obey, we also got to hold on to. Because ultimately, the way in which we obey God is not through our own only hard work. It's not through just like, I'm going to muster up my own strength and I'm going to get it done. <clears throat> Ultimately, the way we obey God is by depending upon his Holy Spirit to work within us, to give us the power to obey, and we do come alongside and participate in that process. But when we try to obey God without depending upon the Holy Spirit, it all comes down to how good we can be, and unfortunately, we can never, ever be good enough. We should obey God. God wants our obedience. <clears throat> the motivation for that is we understand who God is and what he's done, and we respond out of love to obey. And we obey because we love God. We don't obey because we think that's ultimately the way we can get God to love us. And our obedience depends upon the Holy Spirit that is within us, as opposed to solely our own efforts to try to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and grit our teeth and just go. So the question is, they made promises, right? I, I, man, I'm telling you, getting out of that Georgia Dome traffic after we all made the seven promises, the promise keepers, well, boy, there were promises being broken left and right. Hey, what about that old promise, you know, to be holy in my speech? Those words you're saying to that dude who cut you off in traffic, it took all of us about 47 seconds, the minute we stomped that last promise and started elbowing dudes in the hallways to get out of that Georgia Dome, to break our promises. Did these guys do any better, right? How, how did they do in their promises? Well, it's interesting because Nehemiah leaves for a little, Nehemiah leaves for a pure time. They all make these promises. They have their rally. They have the we won't, so we will. Nehemiah heads out of town. We, now we're in chapter 13. We read about that in chapter 13. Verse 6, here's what it says. While this was taking place, in a minute we're going to hear what the, this was. I was not in Jerusalem, Nehemiah is writing this. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. This was not uncommon. Remember, Nehemiah was in the cabinet of King Artaxerxes. He worked for the king, right? He was his secretary of, you know, uh, cupbearers. And it wasn't uncommon that when somebody who worked for the king went away to do something for a while, they would always kind of come back to check in with the boss. So Nehemiah's like, hey, I, I got to go check in with the boss. I got to get back to the office. I got to do some stuff. So Nehemiah leaves the city of Jerusalem. He goes back uh, probably to Susa where he was in the summer palace. And he's there for a period of time. We don't exactly know how many years long, but probably a period of years. And after being away for a period of time, what we read in the last couple halves of those 
verses was, and after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem, right? I came back to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evils that Eliashab had done for Tobiah. So let's rewind now to the very beginning of chapter 13. When he comes back, how have all these people done in keeping their promises? Are they good? Are they bad? What's happening? Here's what we read a few verses as chapter 13 starts. Um, Verse 4. Now before this, right, and here's the spoiler alert. So if you haven't watched the movie yet or binged the book of Nehemiah, Here's the spoilers. We're trying to figure out how they do on this. Man, they did about as well as I would do. But that's okay, because they did about as well as you would do. Every single promise, I will, I won't, they have specifically broken. All the promises about wives, tithes, and Sabbath, guess what? It's like scorched earth. Here's what we read um, about that. Here's what it says. So, now before this, Eliashab, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, the high priest who was supposed to make sure everything going on in the chambers and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given the commands to the Levite singers and Gapian and Okay, we hear about this dude named Tobiah. Anybody remember who Tobiah was? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Please say yes, please say yes, please. Yes, good. You have no idea why. You're just saying yes. Why does Tobiah sound familiar? Yes, absolutely. I don't think I've said it, but I'll help you out. Our weave Tobiah has been this enemy of Nehemiah. Four or five times where we've seen this Tobiah dude pop up his ugly head, and he's tried to distract, he's tried to destroy, he's tried to divide, he's been a critic, he's brought opposition. Every single time we've seen Tobiah, he's been opposed to the work of Nia, opposed to the work of God, opposed to the worship of God. He is an enemy to the things of God. And what we see happening is the high priest has cozied up with Tobiah, and man, cause this influence to happen, and Tobiah, the enemy of the work of God, now has an in-law suite in the temple and the house of God. He's not for God. He's for himself. And the high priest, whose job it was to keep that temple pure and that temple clean for the people of God, has allowed himself to be influenced by the enemy of God. And here's just kind of a little side note. I don't know if it's a footnote. I don't know if it's for free, but I know it's true. And I know it's true because it happened here, and I know it's true because it happens for you. God wants our obedience, right? We should obey God out of a love for God, but our obedience to God is often impacted by the people that we are with. God wants our obedience. We obey God out of a love for God. We obey God dependent upon the Spirit of God. But our obedience to God is often impacted by the people that we are with. The high priest was with the wrong person. The high priest was with the enemy of God who throughout the entire story has never done anything but been opposed to the work of God, and now the dudes got an in-law suite in the temple of God. And where offerings are to be brought to the chamber, which is what the people promised. Remember, I read that word three times. The place where the offerings were to be kept 
is where the enemy of God has his recliner playing Xbox. Because the high priest was influenced by the people and the person that he was with by an enemy of God. And, and here's the truth. And we got to walk this very carefully because some people hear that principle and what they think is this. Okay, I'm a Christian, so if people, I'll never be with any non-Christians. I'm going to get into a little foxhole and I'm going to isolate myself. That's not how we're supposed to live. On one hand, right, the truth is that our obedience to God is often impacted by the people we are with, but God never tells us to isolate ourselves from non-Christians. Jesus, in the last few hours, right, we're going to read about him, I think, in a little bit, coming into town. When he comes into town, after that he has a meal, and the meal before he's arrested, he prays, and what he prays for his followers are, God, don't take them out of the world. In other words, don't remove them from all the people around them, but be with them as they're with the people around them, right? Be in the world, but not of the world. God does not want us to have a bunker mentality. God does not want us to dig a Christian foxhole and isolate ourselves in it from all people. That's not the plan. But at the same time, God doesn't want non-Christians to have more of an influence in our life than Christians have. God doesn't, if you're a Christian, and if you think your holiness to God is only being around Christians, you haven't read the Bible. You haven't. But as Christians who understand that God wants us to love people who don't know him, God wants us to be engaged with people who don't know him, it's also important to have this barometer of, okay, God doesn't want non-Christians to have more influence in our lives than Christians have. You will be influenced by the people around you that you think are most important and you find to be most valuable to you. You will be. And if you're a student, if you're a student, I'm just telling you that the people you hang out with, that you run with, that you think are most important, and you think have something most to offer to you and to complete you, you're going to end up looking like them. Now, I don't know what that means like for you, but I know that the people you're with and the people who are most important in your life are the people who typically have the most influence in your life. And that doesn't mean don't hang out with people who don't share the same faith with you, but what it does mean is, man, you need to make sure you're hanging out with people who share the same faith with you. And you're needing to make sure that they're the ones who are influencing you. They're the ones who are shaping your worldview. They're the ones who are keeping you serving God and honoring God so that you have the fuel and the strength and the fortitude to know, man, go out and be with all sorts of people who don't know God. The people that we hang with often influence our obedience to God. Our obedience to God is impacted by the people we're with. And you need to make sure you're with people who will influence you towards the glory of God and not with people who will influence you away from obedience with God. And if the only person you're with is with yourself, you're going to end up in a whole heap of danger too. You know why? Because this book tells us that. And you know why? Because your own story tells you that. Your own story tells you that. If you were to look back at some of the worst mistakes in your life that you wish you couldn't do, this is what you would say. You would probably say, I was at the wrong place with the wrong people or I was all alone. I was at the wrong place with the wrong people or I was all alone. And as a result of that, I did some things I wish I shouldn't have done. 
So what keeps happening, <clears throat> we've seen one way, this dude's living in this, you know, turn the temple of God into his own private little vacation house. We keep going, right, reading on after that. He's living in this large chamber where they previously put the grain offerings. If we go down then to verse 8 of chapter 13, and this is really interesting too. We see a whole new breed of leadership in Nehemiah. I kind of like this breed of leadership in Nehemiah. Nehemiah, it's like old boys picking up some chairs and tossing something. It is like world wrestling federation, right? Here's what Nehemiah says. He learned about this. He came back and verse 8, and I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. He's like, man, we're, we're going to throw some of this stuff out some windows. Couches are going out the windows. Xboxes are going out the windows. Microwaves are going out the windows. Nehemiah's going crazy trying to cure this thing. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to his field. Here's what's happening. The people made a promise. We will tithe, we will tithe, we will tithe. They don't. And so the Levites, the priests, lived off the tithes of the people. They don't got no money anymore because the people aren't giving to God and to his work. So the Levites are like, man, I got to go get me a job at Starbucks. That's not a bad thing. I would be the best barista ever. But they're like, man, God's people aren't giving to the work of God, which they promised to do, so we can't be supported. So we, we got to go down and find us a job at the gas station pumping some gas because the people weren't keeping their promise to give the tithes. And so what he said, verse 11, was, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? One of the really interesting things is in one of the promises they made, we will never forsake or neglect the house of God. It's so interesting when you track the very thing they promise to do with the very thing they don't do. We'll never forsake it. Well, yeah, you will. Nehemiah says, why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and I set them in the stations. And all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah the Levites, and their assistants, Hanan, Zakara. And then he prays in verse 14. And then there's more problems in verse 15, right? They ain't doing what they should be doing with the tithes. Then this is 15. In those days, when Nehemiah got back in Judah, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, all kind of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. This is Tyrians also who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem themselves. Years ago, the people in Judah said, I will never, ever, ever buy anything on the Sabbath. I won't do it. I promise it's not going to happen. I won't do it. Time goes by, and it's like, bro, give me some of that salmon, right? Let me have one of them fish sandwiches from McDonald's. They're buying all sorts of things on the Sabbath, which they promised not to do. So, verse 17, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, why is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring on this disaster on this day? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So, Nehemiah's like, man, we got to fix this. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. Here's what he's doing. He's like, man, you think you're going to bring your salmon and your cod and your Alaskan crab legs into here to buy? Nope. We're locking the doors. And I'm putting some security guards up with some tasers. 
And if you try to bring in the fried shrimp, it ain't going to happen, right? I stationed my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in. Then the merchants, <laughs> Nehemiah, I love Nehemiah. He's like such a good leader, and now he's just like the best cop ever, right? He ain't taking nothing. Then at the merchants and the sellers of, all way, of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. The dudes are camping out thinking Nehemiah is going to back down. But I warned them, and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Oh! Here's what Nehemiah's doing. Like, bro, you keep selling that salmon in here, it is go time. And they kind of got a little freaked out because they saw a boy throwing microwaves out of the temple a few days ago. So, that, that's in a translation you probably don't have, that microwaves part. So from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then he prays again. They've broken the tithes. They've broken the Sabbath. There's only one other thing that they promised they wouldn't do, and it had to do with wives. How'd they do with that? In those days, verse 23, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, interesting those People throughout the Old Testament have had some of the worst people who did the worst things to the Jewish nation. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I, can, and I confronted them. This is what I'm going to do the next time I get a nasty email. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> I don't, I'll be like... Sorry, I pulled your hair. I'm just trying to be a biblical leader like <laughs> Nehemiah. <laughs> and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And then he talks about Solomon and all this stuff. They sang worship songs. They cried. They had Bible studies. They stomped their feet and they said, We will always, we will never I will, I won't, and what did they do? They didn't. They disobeyed. They disobeyed. Promised to follow the law, and they disobeyed. And at the core level, what their disobedience shows is this root of a problem that has run throughout the Old Testament that nobody could ever, ever fix is time and time again, the people are like, all obey, all obey, all obey, I disobeyed, I disobeyed, I disobeyed. And at the very core of your story and my story, all of the I wills, I won'ts, all starts, all stops, are ultimately insufficient and ineffective to fix the problem of sin that has separated you from God to begin with. I'm not just saying that because people in Nehemiah disobeyed the I wills, I won'ts. I'm not just saying that because I've disobeyed the I wills, I won'ts. I'm not saying that because you've disobeyed the I wills, I won'ts. I'm saying that because the Apostle Paul, years later, as he looked back over the law and all of people's attempts to obey it, says this in Romans 3.20. Here's what he writes. For by the works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in his sight. By the works of his law, nobody, by you trying to do it on your own, by you trying to do it or not do it or start it or stop it or I promise I will or I won't, no human being will ever be declared righteous 
made right, sins forgiven, holiness given in God's sight. And here's what's really important. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, what he's saying is we can never obey our way into a relationship with God and into ultimate forgiveness with God. But what the law does is show us, man, all we do is mess up left and right. All we do is mess up right and left. We should strive to obey God. But what Paul's saying, what others say is this, for people who are out of a relationship with God, all of us at one point are out of a relationship with God because of sin. Because God says, if you have sin in your life, you can't be in a relationship with me. Something's got to take care of that sin. All of us at some point in our story have been out of a relationship with God. And what this is saying is that, man, our obedience is not what will ultimately be the core thing that makes us right and brings us back into a relationship with God. The reason is this, because God demands perfection, and none of us are perfect. What God says to everybody who has sin in their life is like this, okay, guess what? You want to get back with me? Be perfect. God, how good is good enough? Perfect. God, how many good things do I have to do? Perfect. We can't do that. We can't do that. God demands perfection, and none of us are perfect. And what we cannot do, what I can't do, what you can't do, what people in a city 430 years before Jesus couldn't do is obey our way back to God because we're unable to obey our way back to God because we're not perfect. If you're a person out of a relationship with God, what this says is you cannot work your way into a relationship with God. And for those of us who are in a relationship with God, what the work of Jesus on the cross says, what the gospel says, is how well you obey within that relationship is not what determines the security and the standing and your righteousness before God in that relationship. You can't obey your way into a relationship with God. And when you're in a relationship with God, God's ultimate view of you is not whether you're obeying on that day that keeps you righteous. It's the fact that you are in Christ that keeps you secure and righteous. It depends upon the fact not how well you live for God, but the fact that Jesus died for you. What makes you acceptable, no matter who you are? Not a Christian, what would make you acceptable to God? Christian for a hundred years. What makes you acceptable is not how well you're living for God. It's the fact that Jesus died for you. Theological term calls imputed righteousness. It's this idea that through Jesus' death, there was this exchange that took place. This exchange that took place where Jesus says, look, you, what you can't do is be perfect. I have lived perfectly. I will stand in your place. I will stand in your place as your substitute, and I will take your sin, and I will say, God, punish me for their sin, and I will give you my righteousness. I will impute to you my righteousness. And when you respond to that in faith, you are in me. And when you're in me, the Father doesn't see you. He sees me and my holiness. 
And you're forgiven not because you lived well, you're forgiven because Jesus died well. For me, and for you, and for us. But you know what the problem is? The problem is whether we're a non-Christian or a Christian for decades, we sometimes twist or think that the gospel, the good news, is actually dependent upon our obedience. Maybe we don't say that, but many times the problem is we functionally live that. And we think that if we're out of a relationship with God, not forgiven, man, if we want to get right with God right, we better do better. We better do better. Because there's sin in my life. I don't have a relationship with God. I want to be a Christian, so I better do better. Or once we're forgiven because of the imputed righteousness that Jesus gives to us, once we're in Christ, what we still think is this, if I want God to like me, if I, if I want to make sure I don't slip out of his hands and end up in hell, I better do better. And we either start believing or we functionally act as if what makes us acceptable to God is God's view of our view of us is dependent upon our behavior for him. We put pressure on ourselves to save ourselves or to keep ourselves saved. And the reality is we can't earn it and we don't need to earn it. Because you know what grace is? It's unearned. You know what grace is? It's undeserved. You know what grace is? It's unmerited. Free. You don't have to earn it. When we're in a relationship with God, remember what I started with, God wants us to obey Him. God expects us to obey Him. We ought not to water that down, but we ought not to think that what will cause us to be forgiven or acceptable in God's sight and righteous before Him is our obedience. It's not how well we live for God, it's the truth that Christ died for you. But when we take the gospel and the free gift and the unmerited gift and we say, well, actually, it depends upon me. Like my behavior, forgiveness of sin depends upon me, right? Ultimate forgiveness of sin depends upon me. A couple of things can happen. One thing that can happen is you become arrogant and proud. Some of us, some of you, man, you love the law, you love the rules. Because you're like, bro, I'll do that. Let's go. Give me the five things. Check it off. Read my Bible 20 minutes a day. I read it 22 minutes a day. And then what starts happening is we think, and I'm a whole lot better than that person. Well, what starts happening is we become arrogant, we become proud, and we think, well, look how well I'm living, right? <clears throat> I haven't touched a French fry for 42 years. Okay, whatever. And we start to look at all the things that we think we're doing well and right, and we think, well, that, I know that person's not. Man, I'm a little bit, I don't want to brag. And then we start thinking, well, of course God accepts me, because look how good I've been. Man, you know who God, Jesus was angry at in the New Testament? Religious people who that's what they thought. You know who Jesus never walked by? sinful people who said, I need grace. Which one are we going to be? We become arrogant and proud because, man, we can keep the rules. <clears throat> or sometimes we become guilt-ridden and a failure because we fall, because we stumble, because we're in a relationship with God. Our sins will be forgiven. We believe Jesus. We understand the gospel. 
But we still think that if we're not being perfect and obeying perfectly, that, man, that that changes God's acceptance of it. Now, look, does disobedience cause static in a relationship with God? Yes. Does disobedience, are we as uh, flowing and fruitful and can God work in us the way that he wants more? No, right? Yeah, there's the impact of disobedience, right? But that doesn't mean God stops loving you or stops accepting you because he doesn't accept you because of you. He accepts you because of Jesus. And so sometimes when we stumble, we just feel this, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm such a bad person. I now need to be good in order for God to love me again. And we feel guilt. Or after a few years of having that guilt that we keep falling, we're like, I'm done. I'm just going to walk away because I can't keep all the rules. It was never about keeping the rules. It was responding to grace of Jesus who gave up everything for you and out of love for him, obeying him, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and realizing when you fall, there is grace and mercy that causes you to get up and pursue holiness. What happens at the end of Nehemiah? How did things end? Here's how things end, kind of the last, right before Nehemiah's last final prayer. He says this in verse 30. Thus, this is a summary of what he's done. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his own work, and I provided for the wood offerings at a point in time and for the first fruits. What Nehemiah says is I cleansed, I established, I provided, I cleansed. I established, I provided, I cleansed, established, I provided. But you know what that was? That was just drain cleaner. Drain cleaner. You ever use drain cleaner? Yeah, I should invest in drain cleaner. My idea of my solution to every plumbing thing is, man, you just pour you some Pequa in it. I, the, da- the drainer don't even do everything. I got to go to Home Depot to the back corner where you got to put on your hazmat suit to get the drain cleaner like wrapped and encased in plastic. That's the drain cleaner I need, right? And, and what I do with drain cleaner is my drain's clogged. I pour some of that Pequa in there. I get on my suit, get on my load. No, I'm just kidding. Pour the Pequa in there. And man, it's great for a few weeks, but it's not a permanent solution. It's a temporary fix. It's drain cleaner. And what Nehemiah did on that city, right, it was drain cleaner. His, his establishing, cleansing, providing wasn't permanent. And then after Nehemiah did that, you know what Nehemiah did from every account that we know in history? Nehemiah said the prayer, and he walked out of the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah said the prayer, and he walked out of the city of Jerusalem under and through one of the gates that years earlier he had helped rebuild and repair. And then, 430 years later, somebody else walks into the city of Jerusalem. 430 years after Nehemiah walked out of the city through one of the gates that he had helped repair, somebody else walks into the city of Jerusalem. And this is what we read about that day when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to read it out of Mark 11. This is what the Palm Sunday account. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. 
And some of those standing there said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut on the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed him were shouting these things, saying, you're the king, you're the king, right? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They're singing what we sang. You're the king of glory, you're the king of glory, you're the king of glory. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. Nehemiah, 430 years later, had some drain cleaners to try to fix things, and he went out of the city through one of the gates that he repaired. 430 years later, Jesus came into the city through one of the gates that Nehemiah repaired. Most scholars, you can pop the map, think that Jesus came in through the east gate. Through the east gate. And you can pick a picture of the east gate. This is what the east gate looks like today. You can pop that up there. Boom! This is the east gate. Some of this gate was original to Nehemiah. Some of this was repaired. A later Roman king did some repairs. But there are pieces of this stone and this bricks around this gate that was original to Nehemiah. And Jesus, according to most scholars, walked in through this gate under the very arches that Nehemiah had helped repair 430 years later. It's interesting. On one of these things, at some point, probably around the date of Jesus, this was actually had an inscription referred to as the Gates of Susha. The gates of Susha. Susha is another word for Susa, which is where Nehemiah came from to repair the walls and the gates. Kind of interesting. Little Bible trivia nerd thing for you. During the Crusades, these gates were sealed up. And there's this prophecy in Ezekiel, and I know we're a little long. I won't be long on Easter, so I'm going long today. Not intentionally, accidentally, but there's grace. Remember, we talked about grace today, okay? (laughs) Then, right, this is a prophecy. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, speaking about the gate you just saw. And it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened and no one shall enter it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, had entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. What many scholars think is this prophecy in Ezekiel was prophesying that one day that gate would be shut. But there's other prophecies that talk about, but one day the king's going to come back in through that gate. And it's not going to be shut anymore. Jesus walked in through that gate. When Nehemiah left, he'd done some temporary things to cleanse, to establish, and to provide. But Jesus came in that day not with drain cleaner. Jesus came in that day to permanently cleanse, establish, and provide. To permanently cleanse from sin once and for all, to establish a new way to a relationship with God, not through the law, but through himself, and to provide restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation with God because of what he would perfectly do, not linked with how imperfectly we could obey. If you could save yourself, you wouldn't have needed a savior. You can't. And so you do. If you could have saved yourself, you wouldn't have needed a Savior, but you can't save yourself. And the great news is you have a Savior. Like John prayed, Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here. <clears throat> and as I do, you know what? I, I, um, I mean, I every now and then can tell a funny joke and whatever. But I, I, you know what I think is more powerful than my words? I think God's words. 
I think God's words are more powerful than my words. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. I'm just going to end my time reading to you some words about the sufficiency of Jesus. Five or six verses, the very inspired words of God that tell us about the sufficiency of Jesus and what he has permanently done to cleanse, to establish, provide. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus walking towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to end this song, Lord, I Need You. It's familiar to us. And, and one of the lyrics that we'll sing is, where sin run deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, you are free. Holiness is Christ in me. Let's worship and sing together.